This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is, it's not as though, it's not a formal war where they got together and declared that they were going to wage war like we see in the Civil War, but it's a small war. It's an undeclared war, and you've got a lot of people involved in it. And so, yes, you do have a lot of veterans, but you have a lot of people who sat out the war. You know, you've got a lot of planters who are involved. You've got elected officials who are involved. You've got landless whites who were involved, poor whites who were involved. Anyone and everyone who was determined to hoard American privilege and freedom could get in on this violence and did. They didn't need to be a member of a group like the Ku Klux Klan. All they needed was to have an investment in denying Black people freedom. This is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am really excited to have Kadada E. Williams joining me for her new book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Uh, Kadada E. Williams is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University. She's the author of They Left Great Marks on Me, co-author of Charleston Syllabus, and creator of the podcast Seizing Freedom. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, and multiple scholarly journals. Kadada, how are you today? I'm doing great, AJ. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Uh, It's so nice to, we were just talking about this before we went on. So nice to have a fellow podcaster uh, joining me on the uh, the show today. We were were comparing microphones just a few minutes, uh, a few minutes ago. so yeah, so so great to have you here. Um, so I, I really loved your book, and um, I'm always surprised by my gaps in American history. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like like in school, learned a lot about the Civil War, about the battles and the generals, but don't really remember learning so much about Reconstruction, and especially how African Americans were were affected during Reconstruction. Um, so I'm I'm so glad you wrote this book. Um, I guess first, why did you decide to write this book? Well, the reason I wrote the book is because I had been, I study racist violence and I had seen these testimonies that African-Americans had given um, before Congress in 1870 and 1871. And so, you know, I had been looking at the scholarship on reconstruction and I felt that there was like a gap in our understandings. And so I wanted to tell a story of African-American families transitioning from slavery to freedom. And then the, you know, how their determination to make the most of their freedom um, becomes a significant factor in the violence that they endure by groups like the Klan and other vigilantes after the fact. And so that's what led to them testifying before Congress. I wanted to get a sense of that history and to do it from their perspective, from the perspective of the survivors who testified. And so that spending a lot of time with their accounts helped me understand 
that these were often seen by professional historians as the accounts of individual sole elected officials and voters. When I look closely at the um, records, what I understood was that every witness was very clear in trying to illuminate that these are family histories, that they experience this violence as a family, not as individuals. And so I wanted to tell that story. Yeah, and so your book, it draws on the, so you just mentioned these these interviews through the, I think it's the Works Progress Administration, is that right, in the 1930s? Yes. So that's one record said uh, African-Americans who had lived through slavery and Reconstruction, they were interviewed in the 1930s by the Works Progress Administration, and they were often asked questions about slavery and about Reconstruction, particularly about Klan violence. And so I was able to use those records, too, to try to get a sense of their memories of this violence. And what's unique about those records, as opposed to those people who testified in 1870 and 1871, is that these people were children during Klan violence. They were children during the war against Reconstruction. And so their recollections are about what it was like to experience this violence as children, but they have the perspective of adults. And so like, it's a, you know, it's a really, it's a really interesting sort of echo in the historical record back to the 1870 materials, but with the clarity of an adult understanding of what was happening to their families. Yeah. Well, let's maybe dive into some of the history uh, then. So maybe just the general history of Reconstruction. So this is the period right after the Civil War ends, or really just a a few years before it ends, um, going for about 10 years. Um, what what's the purpose of Reconstruction? So Reconstruction is a, it's how the nation tries to figure out a way forward coming out of the Civil War. And so the periodization, the sort of early periodization was about that decade period from um, 1870. Most people start at 1865 and they go to about 1877. But more recently, historians have looked at the larger process of undoing Reconstruction and extended that timeline to a later period in the 19th century. And so the nation is trying to figure out how do they move forward after um, after the Civil War? How do they return the seceded states back to the Union fold? What kind of punishment will there be? How the federal government asserts greater authority and control over the states to avoid secession happening again? And trying to figure out what happens with the uh, more than 4 million newly freed people, what's going to be their place in the nation? Will they have equal rights? Does freedom just mean release from bondage or does it mean something else? They have to work out all of these other details. And so reconstruction is a process. It's all of these policy initiatives that we see over this period as they try to figure out what to do, how to recover from the war, how to move forward. Yeah. And so kind of generally, you know, what is the reality of how reconstruction is is playing out for African-Americans? So I think for African-Americans in particular, it is incredibly significant in the sense that Reconstruction includes the Emancipation Proclamation, it includes the 13th Amendment, and so it breaks the bonds of chattel slavery once and for all. And so for African-Americans, Reconstruction is this whole new world of possibilities 
for them being able to live as free people and all that that entails. And for African-Americans, the end of slavery isn't just about being released from bondage. It's not just being paid for their labor because slavery wasn't only about that. It's about having access to their families, having their own institutions, having access to schools and literacy and education and all the promises and possibilities of life in the nation that the larger white majority in the country had taken for granted. And it also means things like land ownership, becoming your own business owner and the right to vote and serve in office. So African-Americans coming out of the war have all of these things in mind. This is what they want. This is what they believe freedom means. And they've been looking at freedom for all of their lives while they're in slavery. And so when they release from bondage, what they say is we need all of these rights, but all of those rights are contested by the larger white majority, including those in the, um, including those white folks in the North and the West who are uneasy about emancipation because they are worried about the prospect of having to share the American pie with Black people, especially those coming out of slavery. And so African-Americans have to find allies in order to fight, uh, who are going to fight that fight. And they will find them in those radical Republicans, those very progressive members of Congress, some of whom were abolitionists before the war, who believe that Emancipation represents an opportunity to um, sort of mete out justice. And what they mean by that is to build a more just world where African-Americans can be free, equal, and secure. And that's why we'll have the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the 14th and 15th Amendment, and the Civil uh, uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875. And all of those are really designed to bring African-Americans more fully into the fold and to make sure that they enjoy the same rights and protections as everyone else in the nation. And so African-Americans, this is what they want coming out of slavery. Um, And this is what they get and they're able to enjoy for a period of time. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's worth noting it was worth me um, reading this in your book uh, to be reminded that, um, you know, this is 4 million people who've got nothing, who are just like starting completely fresh. Um, and to be, it, I thought it was just, um, it was good to be reminded of of that starting point um, in 1865 or, or shortly around then. Um, so uh, it's widely considered that that Reconstruction was a failure, um, although you write that it wasn't so much a failure as um, white Southerners overthrew it. Um, why didn't Reconstruction work? And and why is the distinction that you make, failing versus being overthrown, why is that important? Right. I think it's important because the language of Reconstruction failing is curiously in the passive voice, right? Buildings don't just collapse right? There's a structural issue inside of it. Um, Bridges don't just collapse. There's a structural issue inside of it. Reconstruction didn't just sort of fail because it was this that because it was destined to not work. Um, and so I think we have to be careful about when we move to history in the passive voice. Uh, and I think that matters because Americans are great for saying we won the American Revolution, but slavery is just something to happen right? Reconstruction failed. Uh, so there's a, there's a curious move there. What we know happens with Reconstruction is that there is, um, you know, general support for some aspects of Reconstruction, but not necessarily for all uh, aspects of Reconstruction, but they get it on the books. 
and African-Americans are living their lives. They're making the most of freedom. And so, as you know, they start with nothing, but that they have everything, right? So they don't have a lot of material goods, but they have their labor. They have their determination to succeed. They have their willingness to bet on themselves and their families and their ability to make it in a fair system. Right. And so if they have access, you know, white Southerners, the former enslavers, they need labor, desperately need labor. Their labor needs are some people might argue that they're greater after the war than they were before the war because they have to do all of this rebuilding. So it's not a question for African-Americans about whether or not they're going to have to work. They know they're going to have to work. They know they'll have to, you know, do this in order to survive. And they're eager to do it. But they are operating with people who are determined to not pay them for that work or determined to sustain slavery as much as possible. And so what we'll see from the former enslaving class is their determination to limit freedom as much as possible, to undercut African-Americans' possibilities, to undercut their earnings, to undercut the kind of jobs they can have. For the former enslaving class, all they want is Black people to continue working under the same conditions as they had before the war. But Black people have a very clear understanding that slavery is over. And so what we will see is that, you know, for a lot of families, it takes about three years for them to acquire land. Now, they're not just sitting at home chilling to get that land. They are working and being paid for their labor unless their labor, unless their wages are being stolen from them. So it takes them about three years to get on their feet and acquire land. But as soon as they acquire land, they're being targeted. That work is, you know, enslavers and those landless whites before the war are doing what they can to deprive Black people of access to their land and all of that opportunity. So we have to be aware of those things, you know, um, when it comes to Black men voting, rather than just allowing Black men to vote in the South or outvoting them, right? What we see white supremacists do is organize to kill Black men who are voting at the polls, to rather than beat them, right, you know, the sort of American investment in meritocracy, rather than beat them legitimately, what they do is they steal elections and they are quick to assassinate Black men who are running for office and Black men who've been elected to office. So when we talk about reconstruction um, failing, when people use that language, what they're doing is ignoring all of that. They're ignoring the violence. They're ignoring the assassinations. They're ignoring all of the massacres and coups that we see during Reconstruction. They're ignoring all of the Black people who are driven off their land. They have made it. They're successful. Um, you know, we see those who are opposed to Black people's freedom destroying Black churches and schools and targeting and assassinating um, ministers and teachers doing whatever they can to tear down anything and everything Black people built. And so when we use the language of failure, we conveniently erase, we paper over all African-Americans managed to achieve during that period and the ways that white people, racist whites in particular, that they went out of their way to destroy everything that they built. So they had nothing less, uh, excuse me, nothing left but to potentially go back to the plantation. So for me, that's the distinction. Uh, and... That narrative of failure is one that is part of the lost cause narrative that people are familiar with in terms of the Civil War, you know, and the threads of that are that um, the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. It was only about states' rights, you know, all of this other stuff. And there's a reconstruction component of that. And the reconstruction component is that Black people were free from slavery. They were given every possible chance to succeed. 
And a lot of that had to do with white Northerners unfairly punishing uh, black so uh, white Southerners for seceding. But the, the rights and the vote, et cetera, they were all wasted on black people. So reconstruction just failed. It just fell apart. Right. So that's the narrative that lost cause enthusiasts told. And that became picked up by the larger historical profession, by educators. And then it became part of the common way uh, we've been taught reconstruction uh, for a couple of decades now, at least. Yeah. Uh, first, that's such a good point you make about um, the, the passive voice of something failing um, versus, no, there were people who made it fail. Um, yes. as you, as you wrote these, um, these white Southerners who overthrew it. Um, and then too, uh, about the things that we've learned. I remember in, um, it's like in my twenties, one day I just Googled, what was the U S civil war about? And like, I had like gone through, you know, all of my, you know, I feel like I've always loved history too. Right. And like, I really paid attention in school to history and almost immediately, like the answer Google gives me back is slavery, yeah. but you don't learn that in schooling. Um, and so it's, you're, you're so right in, in, in what you're talking about in, in, uh, in these gaps in, in what, what people are commonly taught. Right. Um, I want to go back real quick to, um, some of the, uh, the violence that's being perpetrated during reconstruction against African-Americans, because I think a, a lot of people, have um think maybe it's just lynchings is um which of course is awful but you're right it's actually much more than that um what are the types of violence that african americans are experiencing at this time so we so there are different types uh as you know um there's reprisal violence and some of that we see as african americans are escaping slavery and the fact that they have to escape slavery after the Emancipation Proclamation is a testament to how committed enslavers were to holding on to the people they held in bondage. And that kind of reprisal violence is attacking and killing Black people when they leave farms and plantations. That's finding some of the refugee camps that they set up and massacring them if they can't drag them all back to slavery. That's kidnapping Black people from uh, Union Army camps and dragging them back to slavery. So you see this kind of like incessant violence very early on for Black people who are trying as, you know, um, beatings, attacks, killings, rapes, uh, as they're trying to escape slavery. After Union forces may move into a region to make sure that Black people have been released from bondage, what you see are different types of bondage. You see economic violence. And some of that economic violence is depriving Black people of occupations. So, and this is organized. You're organizing to deprive Black people uh, access to any jobs that are beyond the farmer plantation so that they have no choice for their very survival, but to work in conditions very much like they had during slavery. You also have the violence of holding on to their children uh, and um, you know, trying to put them in apprenticeships under the argument that the former enslavers were in a better position to take care of Black youth than their actual parents and relatives were. Um, so it's a very strategic move and depriving someone of their children is violent. It's also part of the violence that had been common with slavery. So we need to sort of be aware of the, some of these through lines of the same kind of violence that's used to hold Black people in bondage being used to hold them in slavery. 
uh, excuse me, being used to undercut their freedom on the other side of the war. So you have um, whippings, beatings, attacks, rapes, uh, killings for Black people who are trying to seize their freedom in other ways. If they're insisting on being paid a wage for um, for work, if they are refusing sex, and we think about women, for example, who essentially had to endure sexual violence during slavery. But on the other side of it, they believe they sort of understand that I'm a free woman. I do not have to deal with this anymore. And so when they decline and when they fight back, there's a greater chance that they will be more severely raped and maybe even killed for defending themselves. So you've got all of this other kinds of violence that's happening in these day-to-day -day encounters. And these are one-on-one -on -one attacks where it's a Black person, it's a white person assuming to see some kind of a, um, authority over Black people, the Black person refusing and the white person lashing out. What starts to happen, particularly after the 15th Amendment, and you've got more Black men voting and running for office, is that the violence starts to become much more coordinated. And instead of attacking Black people one-on-one -on -one and risking the chance that they might get beat, uh, what you see is white Southerners organizing into these vigilante squads. And they are often invading Black people's homes in the middle of the night. And the people that they're attacking, and we should be clear about this, are not people who have deliberately uh, attacked or harmed white people. The people they're attacking are Black landowners, Black teachers, Black ministers, Black people who may have a little bit more cash on hand, you know, and so you, there are the, these accounts of, you know, Black um, black men, for example, taking their earnings and they go to the local store and they're buying a lot of goods. And then there are poor white people who may be uh, working in the store or around the store who see them with all of this cash on hand and decide that they want to tear down everything that they built. So you see a lot, so you see like this, it's a constellation of violence or a menagerie of violence that you see. And all of it is designed to undercut Black people's freedom, to punish them for resisting subjugation um, and to leave them with no choice but to potentially go back to a farmer plantation if they manage to escape this violence with their life. And I think that matters because enslavers, it wasn't financially practical for enslavers to just kill the Black people they held in bondage. But free Black people, Black people who are seizing their freedom are a different story. And so there's like um, the flipping of a switch in terms of the value of Black people's lives and white Southerners' minds changing from emancipation to, from slavery, I should say, to freedom. And so you see a lot more deadly violence on the other side of it. Yeah. And um, so you talk about how this violence was really in the South, it was society wide. But um, once the organization begins, then you get um, you get the Ku, Ku Klux Klan. Right. Um, you get what you you call what you describe the, the Night Riders in your book. Yeah. Who are the Night Riders and what's what's their role in Reconstruction? Right. So night riders are white vigilante squads and they um, attack in the middle of the night. Um, they're armed. And what they do is they stage these home invasions. So they're like home invasions. We could recognize them today. So it's armed white men, gangs, and sometimes squads of armed white men who attack black people in the middle of the night where they're not expecting to need to defend themselves. A lot of people aren't even expecting to be attacked. And they're held hostage for what can be hours at a time. And they're subjecting um, Black families to 
rape, torture, murder, all kinds of obscene um, acts. And this is a, what's very clear in the violence is the perpetrator's insistence on conveying to Black people that they don't have any rights that white people are bound to respect. And so this is what that violence looks like. And so it starts in 1867. It really starts to intensify in 1868 um, with more Black men voting and being elected into office. And it continues um, through the end of Reconstruction and it will eventually evolve into lynching. But what we see in these attacks is that, as I noted, people aren't prepared to defend themselves. You know, if someone were to break into your home tonight, are you ready to need to defend yourself? Can you anticipate how everyone in your household might respond to armed men crowding in and seeking to hurt them? And so it's pure pandemonium in these attacks and Black people have to do what they can to try to survive them. Yeah, and uh, also too, it should be noted that the these night riders, they're people who all have combat experience. Um, most of them are veterans from the the Civil War. Um, and you actually, something I thought really interesting about your book is you frame this as a war. Um, yes. You call it the, the war on freedom. Yes. And you you talk about night riders as paramilitary groups um, and, and terrorists. Um, talk about the the decision to to frame this in that way. Well, I wanted to frame it that way because that's clearly how African-Americans understood it. And even in the congressional record, you know, you've got the language in the majority report that this was a reign of terror. Even U.S. Army personnel are using that kind of language about terrorism. And it's curious because... It's curious to see because it's not a language that we associate necessarily with that time. Um, but there are people at the time, including white people, who understand this as um, this violence, as direct attacks on Black people's freedom. And so I wanted to honor their clarity on the situation um, and to look at it, to sort of zoom out at the violence and to show that this is, it's not as though, it's not a formal war where they got together and declared that they were going to wage war like we see in the Civil War, but it's a small war. It's an undeclared war, and you've got a lot of people involved in it. And so, yes, you do have a lot of veterans, but you have a lot of people who set out the war. You know, you've got a lot of planters who are involved. You've got elected officials who are involved. You've got landless whites who were involved, poor whites who were involved. Anyone and everyone who was determined to hoard American privilege and freedom could get in on this violence and did. They didn't need to be a member of a group like the Ku Klux Klan. All they needed was to have an investment in denying Black people freedom. And so they acted until they didn't. So they would move into white terrorist activity and then they would move out. Um, and it's very much like the um, sort of extremists that we may associate with um, January 6th. You know, people, they showed up, they were at the Capitol, and then they got back on planes and they went back to their lives, Right. That's how this violence historically has worked. And you can see this happening in Reconstruction. And so I, as I said, I wanted to honor survivors and some of their allies' clarity on the deliberate targeting of Black people who were seizing their freedom and to acknowledge all of the casualties in this violence that many people, they don't understand because they've been taught that Reconstruction was a failure. 
They don't understand that this was a war that was declared on Black people, a war against Reconstruction, um, and that it wasn't just a sort of rhetorical war. It was an actual war where people used violence and people lost their lives. Yeah. Well, what do you think, framing it as a war, in terms of how we study Reconstruction, how do you think that helps us understand what happened to African-Americans at this time? Right. I think framing it as a war helps. So I think part of what we need to understand is that wars don't have neat ends. Right. Um, I think about Michael Boyle's work, you know, uh, wars don't end as neatly as they appear in history books. They're often followed by new conflicts. And so if we look at the even the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, the war, the wars, both of those wars are over but they're both followed by new conflicts. And so I wanted to sort of like, in using the language of war, I wanted to draw attention to the new conflict created by Black people seizing their freedom. And so I'm very clear on the fact that it's not a declared war. And I think that, you know, those of us who study war need to get better at acknowledging the realities of conflict, especially conflict around the globe, not just within a U.S. context. And so there are wars that are undeclared. And so I use the concept by Nancy Shepard Hughes about the small war. A small war is not a declared war. It's not a war between clashing armies, but it is nonetheless a war in which there are different sides and there are a lot of significant casualties. And so what I wanted to do was to draw, and using this language for uh, Reconstruction, I wanted to illuminate this new conflict uh, and this new these new battle lines and the new terrain that's being fought over Black people being free and their desire to be equal and secure in the American system and the resistance to that by the larger white majority. Yeah, that's so interesting um, because I think just in history in general with wars, uh, you're right. Like there's there's no there's often no clear end, and so you think about like the Hundred Years' War, there was really like four wars in there. <laughs> and a lot of people say World War II is just an extension of World War I. Right. Um, so that so that is really interesting. Um, do you think that that one day maybe that that this reconstruction period will be considered, you know, a lot of people say the Civil War goes from 1861 to 1865. Do you think it should be extended past, or do you think we should think of these as two separate wars? I think they're related, but different wars. I mean, like even within the scholarship, there is the language about reconstruction being, you know, uh, as Eric Foner calls it, the second founding, right? So the second founding after the American Revolution. There's some people who also call reconstruction America's second revolution, right? For all of the revolutionary changes that are taking place and the fights over them. Right. You know, the American Revolution. I, and so, again, like part of this is like it, I, what I what I'm what I'm doing is listening to how Americans talk about history and understanding like their blind spots. Right. People think that the American Revolution, that, the, you know, that it was revolutionary. It was wonderful. And apparently no blood was shed. That's not how revolutions work. Right. Show me sh show me a bloodless right. revolution <laughs> in history. Right. Show yeah. me one. Um, and so there's a the sort of like a refusal to sort of reckon with the realities of our history. You know, even settler colonialism in the United States did not happen without violence. The native peoples of, you know, North America are very clear in their understanding of the violence um, that was used to take their land and sovereignty from them. And so 
I do think that, so as a historian, I think we have to acknowledge that there is a difference between what's happening in the Civil War and Reconstruction, but that they are related. And that's why I say it's a new conflict. It's related, but it's a new conflict. There is a through line, but something does significantly change with the end of the, with the formal end of the Civil War. So uh, can you talk about a few of the stories then um, in your book about some of the African-Americans and some of the families that uh, that you read about in your research, um, just who who were they? What types of people were they? And what what types of um, uh, things did they experience? Right. So I'll uh, tell the story of the Tutsons. They're down in Florida um, near Waldo, and they are a husband and wife, and they have three young children. They they do have a set of older children, but those children have left the home. They, at the end of the Civil War, they managed to get a, they work hard. And as I said, it takes people about three years, families about three years in order to um, earn enough money to get land. And so they are at the end of that period. So by 1868, 1869, they managed to get a homestead, They are in the process of, um, they have about 160 acres. They've managed to sort of move into this by virtue of um, Samuel's work on the land and Hannah's work on the land and as a domestic worker, or she's doing laundry uh, for uh, white families in the community. And so they get on their land. And as soon as they get on their land, their white neighbors start pestering them, trying to drive them off the land saying, oh, this land isn't yours. This land's belonged to someone else. You can't have this land. And so what the Tutsons know, Hannah and Samuel both know, is that they have the land. They're free and clear to have the land. They are in rightful ownership of the land. So of course they're not leaving. Why would they leave their own land? And so they continue to be pestered. They continue to refuse. And the sort of temperature gets turned up each time the white men come back trying to get the family off the land. And Hannah and Samuel are both clear in their refusal to leave. And so because they can't convince the family to abandon their prospects, um, what the white neighbors do is they stage a raid, but they have a deputy sheriff along with them. And so when we talk about who's involved in this violence, anyone and everyone who's invested in white supremacy and denying Black people the prospects um, of making the most of freedom can be involved in this. And so they stage a nighttime raid. Um, They storm into the home. They drag out the adults, Hannah and Samuel. They take them to two completely separate uh, areas on their property. And they tie them both to trees. They whip whip Samuel um, until he's senseless. They whip and sexually assault Hannah. And then they tear down their home. They knock down all of their fences. They destroy what crops they have in the ground. And it's not, and with the young children, they've got three young children under, I believe, 10 in the house. Um, And the older daughter, she manages to grab the youngest uh, um, and she takes them out to a wood pile. And we know that she plies the baby with like blackberries in order to stop the baby from crying out and drawing the men to them where they might harm them. And so it's not until the next morning um, when Han- when the men leave her, uh, Hannah alone, she tries to go and get assistance from any of their neighbors and no one will help them. No one will allow the battered, bloody woman into their home. And so she wants help looking for her family because she believes they've all been killed. 
So she continues searching for them and she eventually finds um, her husband Samuel tied to the tree. Their children don't make it home until the next morning after the sun has risen and they know it's safe to go back. And so the couple, they report what they report what happened to them immediately. And they go and find a white judge. And the judge says, no, this is your land. You, you know, do not let them drive you off their land. Defend yourselves if you have to. And what Hannah and Tuts, what Hannah and Samuel know is that they barely survived the raid as it was. They understandably don't think that they can stay, that they can live through another one. But they're being told that they should rebuild and, you know, stay on their land. And so they continue to try to get justice. They go from county to county to county, authority authority to authority, trying to get justice, including for the fact that there's a deputy sheriff who was uh, as a party of the uh, was in the raiding party and who sexually assaulted Hannah. And so they are not confident that they will get justice. And they will eventually test both of them will eventually testify before Congress about what happened to them. And when they testify, it is not clear whether or not they will be able to get justice and safely live on their land. And so I lose track of them for a period of time, but then I find them again, because I tracked all of the families in the census. Um, I find them again in St. John's County um, about a decade and a half later. So they've left the original county and they're in, in a new uh, county and they don't have land. Um but they are together and they do appear to be holding on. So that's one family. So they're not attacked for doing anything that they had done to, um, they had done to white people. They are not being accused of any crime. What they did was make the most of their freedom and they're being, and they were being penalized and punished in the most horrific way for their success. So that's just one family. Yeah. And um, you, you write about how, so this is very typical of um, many African-American families in the South at this time. Um, you write that families would, um, if they lived in in night Rider areas, they would often sleep outside their home um, because they knew their home is where they would come to attack them in the middle of the night. And they often felt safer sleeping under the stars. Um, and also, too, very common with what you were just talking about that judges and um, the police, the local authorities, all of these local institutions that are supposed to, you know, be the the arbiters of justice, um, you know, they're they've they're often in cahoots with the Night Riders um, or the the Ku Klux Klan or these uh, white supremacist groups. Um, and then to the federal institutions you write about are either underfunded um, or they're, they're just not, um, they, they're not given a lot of, of, of attention. So um, that, that story I thought was very powerful. Um, why do you think that, that stories like this um, and the other ones that you have uh, in your book, what are they, why are they important for us to, to learn about today? I think they're important for us to learn about because they illuminate what was really happening on the ground. I think that in terms of U.S. history, what we often get is history from 30,000 feet, right? So, you know, reconstruction happened. You may not know all of the details, but you know that there's something that follows the Civil War. The stories bring us into like the snail's eye view, 
right? Or the ant's eye view. So you can have a really good up close and personal understanding of the dynamics that we're describing. So if people, they hear that I talk about reconstruction failing, or excuse me, reconstruction being overthrown and not failing, they can look at a story like the attack on the Tutsons as an example of um, this larger freedom denying enterprise that we have. And, you know, the very fact that you've got a uh, deputy, you've got a deputy sheriff who's involved in the attack sort of helps people understand like all the specific actors who are involved in this. You would have judges, lawyers, lawmakers, uh, and law enforcement involved in this violence because they have been involved in the violence of slavery, right? And they are invested in doing what they can to sustain their privileges in the system. And so they will whistle past and maybe not pay that much attention to uh, even reports, very clear reports of the violence, which we know are going not just they're not circulate. They're not just circulating locally. They're being sent to Washington D.C. They're going to the president. They're going to members of Congress. They're going to U.S. Army personnel. Um, as people are trying to make clear about, they're trying to make clear the fact that in their minds, uh, ex-Confederates are not respecting the terms of the peace. Right to stop fighting in order to sustain the system. Uh, the truth of the matter is that they stopped fighting the U.S. Army. They just shifted their focus to um, Black people who are seizing their freedom. I think the other thing is that there are, in the historical records, there are also a lot of families of white loyalists who experience similar kinds of violence. These are white veterans uh, from who served in the U.S. Army uh, during the Civil War. They're subjected to this kind of violence too, but a lot of it is much more in retaliation, in punishment. So you don't have the same kind of racial component, um, but you do have the determination to exact vengeance. And so these people who are veterans of the U.S. Army are often acting in support of Reconstruction. And so this is why they are attacked. And so I think that war on reconstruction, I focus on the Black victims of the war on reconstruction. Uh, Stephanie McCurry and other people are looking at the white victims of this war on reconstruction. Um, and so you can understand what's actually happening on the ground when you've got these firsthand accounts like the ones that I have. Uh, well, Kadada, this has been uh, such a wonderful interview, um, and thank you so much. My my last question here, what lessons are you hoping people take away from your book? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, so I think one of the main points that I wanted to raise is that the arc of our history doesn't always bend toward justice. And I wanted readers to see how investments in white supremacy play a role in that. I think the other thing I wanted readers to understand is how committed Black people were, Black families were to securing their people's futures, um, to trying to build a new world after slavery where they could live upright, uh, a more morally just world after slavery, um, and the price that white Southerners made them pay for their uh, efforts to build this more just world. And so I want, what I hope readers can do is understand 
that some of the reasons we're still dealing with and living with racist violence from either police or from vigilantes uh, is because of this violence that we see during this period of Reconstruction. It's There's not ex an exact through line. It's not exactly the same. Um, but if we understand this violence of Reconstruction, we can understand the violence of today and maybe we can play a more active role in bringing it to an end. Yeah, absolutely. History does not uh, just live in the past. Exactly. Uh, for sure. Um, well, if people want to, if they want to follow you, if they want to find you, uh, Kadada, where can people um, stay in touch with what you're doing? So I'm most active on Twitter at Kadati E. Williams. And so that's generally where you can find me. You can also listen to uh, my podcast, Seizing Freedom at seizingfreedom.vpm.org. Uh, it tells the story of African-Americans seizing their freedom during the Civil War and Reconstruction and afterwards. Wonderful. Uh, well, Kadata, thank you again. Um, Kadati E. Williams, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Uh, go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. Uh, it's a story worth, uh, worth reading and sharing. And Kadata, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, AJ, for having me. It's been such a pleasure.